I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. For this week's episode, we're going to be hearing from some of the participants in the POMEF's annual conference, which was held at George Washington University at the end of May. Um, and we had a number of panels uh, with uh, covering a whole range of themes, um, and we're going to hear three of them in today's episode. First, we're going to hear about uh, the state of the field in migration and, and refugee studies with Nora Lori, Rima Majid, and Wendy Perlman. After that, we're going to have a, a look into what's happening in Jordan with two experts, Curtis Ryan and Andre Bonk. And then finally, we assess the state of political Islam in the region with Nathan Brown and Stephen Brooke. Uh, thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And this year's annual POMEPS conference, we were able to sit down and talk with a number of, uh, of scholars in the leadership about issues related to their research and to the developments in the Middle East. And today we're going to talk with uh, Nora Lori of Boston University, uh, Rima Majid of the American University of Beirut, and Wendy Perlman of Northwestern University about things related to migration, refugees, and uh, kind of the broader study of and engagement with uh, these really large-scale movements of people, um, uh, both historically and in the contemporary period. And I thought we would start with um, with uh, Nora um, because you well, you can tell us about your recent position and, and where it places you in terms of being able to look at the trends in the in the literature. Yeah, thank you. So um, this year I had the privilege of working with Galia Lahav and we were the section organizers for the migration citizenship section of the American Political Science Association. And so it was a wonderful way to get a sense of the emerging research in this field. Um, and by far and large, the uh, there's a very strong interest in thinking about refugees in particular, and by far and large, the, the most common method used was experiments. Um, and so a lot of the, the emerging research is asking a very similar kind of question in different contexts and replicating uh, similar kinds of experiments that are very much about how information or disinformation about refugee populations changes attitudes of host societies, mm. uh, whether to the negative or the positive. Um, and, uh, you know, this research is exciting. Um, at the same time, it it was kind of, um, I found it kind of limiting uh, for thinking about the how we're training PhD students and what kinds of questions we're asking about refugees, not just because it forces you to be a little bit more narrow in, in terms of thinking about the kinds of questions we're asking, but um, it constantly puts the focus on the attitudes of host populations towards this um, a group that is increasingly othered in the very way that these these experiments are structured. Um, the other problem is if we take the findings of such experiments seriously, then doing this kind of work of negative primes to measure negative attitudes has an impact that that may not be what we're we're trying to do. And I think when thinking about why are we seeing this trend? One is it's general trend in political science towards more experimental research. Um, another could be the possibility, you know, the, the, the questions of information, misinformation, populism are very salient globally, especially in the global north. Um, but it's it's also hard to reach um, and, um, uh, and uh, ethically kind of uh, difficult sometimes to know how to engage with vulnerable populations uh, like refugees and ask them about their own experiences. And so I think that 
those limitations are really sort of pushing the field in a way to focus a lot more on host populations' uh, responses to, to migration. What's interesting there is that you know, there's so many big issues that are in the headlines every day related to migrations and refugees. You know, Sudan right now is generating a huge new wave of refugees. Um, and then during the, the the World Cup in Doha, there was a huge controversies around the kafala system and, 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 and labor migration. So it seemed that you would expect to see a much broader uh, research agenda. And you didn't really see that? Um, it was, there were some interesting research um, questions around sort of the privatization of migration management, mm. the, the intermediaries in migration management, um, gender, climate change, but overwhelmingly the vast majority were um, questions that are about attitudes. Yes. And I also think that that's because experimental methods lend themselves to these kinds of questions around attitudes and it gets harder to um, ask other questions that are more material in nature um, and uh, using that method. So it might be that we're pushing the field in that direction by virtue of the way we're training students and, and seeing what's you know cutting edge methodology in political science. Interesting. Um, so Remo, how about you? I don't have this uh, broad overview on the literature uh, uh, as Nora because she she uh, sits in this position. But I um, I think that doing doing in depth uh, fieldwork in uh, in uh, in the region Lebanon specifically, what I see is I agree that there is a trend that we see in the literature that we don't that I did not necessarily see in my in my research. So for example, there's an assumption that refugees want to go to Europe or want to be in a in a bet in a in a different place. They want to be in the global north, right? Um, and in my research, it's true that they want better living conditions. Uh, but I but I also found that many people actually, the majority of people that I've I've interviewed and uh, you know worked with, they actually don't say that they want to do it. Uh, they some of them think that they have to do it, but in many many cases, I've I I, I remember for example very vividly interviewing uh, a family. Uh, a, a, a mother with her kids and her husband is in prison in Syria and I, I was talking to her and her 10 year old uh, boy jumps and says no we don't want to go to Germany because if my father is ever out of prison he will come and search for us in Lebanon he will not think that we are in Germany so we want to stay here uh, other families saying that it's either all of us move together <laughs> or we all stay like we don't want like one member of the family has gotten uh you know the visa and others have not so it's a more complex story of what people want and people don't want and how people are thinking about uh you know their choices and also in many cases uh, their lack of choices right it's in many cases it's not really just a choice it's there it's like these obstacles that make make their life and their choices very limited but yeah, more in-depth research tell us that the trends we see at the macro level or what the literature is talking about, when we when we dig deeper, it's way more nuanced than that. And these are the type of nuances we don't get when we do the when we follow the methods that are mainstream and that get us, you know, this uh, same kind of question over and over again. In many cases, with the same answer. And and this is why I think this is a good time to uh, take a step back and think: What are we asking? And, uh, you know, what are we leaving out and how do we think of what we're leaving out? Um, so I think, yeah, more in-depth research can lead us to uh, very different and new novel findings in, in the literature. 
what strikes me the most in Lebanon and in the when I've been doing research with uh, with Syrian refugees there is just how horribly they're treated in Lebanon. And it's and- getting worse and worse. I mean, it's uh, as the crisis deepens, it's getting really very. Uh, I mean, there's a a, a very racist, uh, you know, uh, environment, um, and the, the usual scapegoating that we see everywhere, right? The financial crisis now. It's uh, you know, it's it's the Syrians who are blamed for it, Syrian refugees who are blamed for it. We tend to forget that actually the crisis was a bit delayed because of the influx of capital that came mm-hmm. at the uh, you know with with the beginning of of the crisis to the Lebanese banking uh, system. So, yes, it's a very very tough. Uh, um, everyday life uh, for many of those people, but it's also one, I mean, life being hard does not necessarily mean that people want to move. No, And true. I think this is something that we need to be thinking more about and not just assuming that if people are saying we're not happy where we are, it doesn't mean that they want to move uh, to what you know, we think is a better place. And actually, uh, uh, and maybe Wendy can tell us more about, you know, a lot of people who have reached the other side uh, realize that it's not greener, right? I mean, I have a lot of friends who ended up uh, in Europe and who actually returned or who uh, regret going because it's uh, it's also a very hostile environment. Um, so, but the considerations are many. It's gendered. It's class based. It's uh, you know, it's people who have different political situations and security situations. Uh, so now, I mean, the urgency is for people who are, I mean, what we what is now being framed as the voluntary returns. Mm-hmm. That is very very problematic. But it's mainly, I mean, it's mainly men who are trying to escape and go anywhere because these are uh, those who will be uh, taken to the uh, uh, military service or those who are uh, you know uh, who were in the active in the opposition and like it's a real risk to return um so yeah it's it's complex but i think we need to be able to study more deeply what is i think as social scientists we want to understand how is it gendered how are people making these decisions but also the importance of the family as a unit and the importance of uh, you know, memories or links with Syria or having people still in prison or having uh, an, a, a sick family member. These shape migration trends in general beyond just, you know, uh, the host community is hostile. In general, the host community is hostile almost everywhere. So, Wendy, you've been you've been researching with Syrian refugees for a decade now. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your experiences and, and how do you see this? Yeah, I mean, my experiences definitely echo what my two colleagues have said. So um, I began doing open-ended interviews with displaced Syrians in 2012 and basically have been doing it ever since. So it's been more than a decade now. And the interviews have evolved over the years. Um, But essentially what I do now is I always say I ask two questions. One is, do I have your permission to record? And the other is, tell me about yourself. So they're extremely open-ended and what I just collect are narratives. And what I like about this approach is it, it comes in without any of the assumptions um, that Nora and Rima have shown can really limit limit the kinds of questions we ask and the conclusions we draw and creates hopefully creates some sort of space for people to talk about their own lives. Um, and I think of these, these interviews as a kind of, you know, the, the interviewee is driving the bus and they're just going along talking about whatever they want to talk about. And I'm there on the bus every so often I press the button to say, stop here, stop requested to say, hmm, that's interesting. Can you tell me more about it? So my role is, is just to you know have batteries in the in the recorder do active listening and try to dig where i find most interesting but people talk about all sorts of things that you would never even think 
to ask. And, um, and, and I try to use that as various materials. Um, so what I'm working on now is the question of home, which echoes, I think, a lot of things that, that Rima was talking about. And I think that the, the question of home is, well, on the one hand, it's exciting because it's a universal human question. It doesn't sort of otherize, marginalize refugees that they have some their particular kind of person um, that have particular kinds of experiences that home is a, is a universal question. All human beings have some story about home, whether it's positive or negative or complex or straightforward, or they're still searching for it. Um, and, and displaced peoples have a have a special experience with home having been forced to, to flee a country of origin, which they may or may not even see as home. Um, opening up a space for people to narrate, um, so, because just as, as Rima was talking about how there's complexity um, that might defy expectations on where people want to be, as, as an assumption that you want to be to get to the most developed country you can. There are also assumptions about people's relationships with the country left behind. And in some discourse about integration, from, for example, there might be an assumption of, oh, people felt at home, they lost their home, and now they have to um, create conditions so they can feel at home again. But people's relationships to back home might be quite quite complicated. There might be a lot of nostalgia for childhood innocence, for family, for foods, for landscapes, but also a lot of realism about indignities uh, suffered there, uh, lack of freedom and, and oppression and lack of security. So uh, people may want to return home or may not want to return home, not only because of political conditions, but because of the complexity of what it means to be a, a human uh, um, finding belonging, security, and fulfillment in the world. But these are the kinds of, uh, of, of avenues that open up when, when a researcher sees his or her mission as creating a space for a person to talk, to simply listen, um, whether that's the only data source or that's uh, a kind of a, a stage of the research process that allows you then to, to, to identify questions that you might identify with other methods. But when people come in with a very narrow sense of what's even worth researching in the first place and, and not diverge from that, uh, then we wind up with the situations of the kind of research that Nora uh, identified uh, with a critical eye. One thing which is interesting about your research in particular is that um, you know a lot of people have looked at re Syrian refugees in Lebanon or in Jordan mm -hmm. or in Turkey, um, and you've done all of that, but you've also spent a lot of time uh, with Syrians in Europe and Germany in particular. Mm -hmm. And do, do you hear different stories? Do they have different experiences or are there something, anything systematic you can say about the kind of material you're collecting from those who made it to Europe and those who didn't. Yeah, and and here I, I think Green for putting the the question of class on on the table because you know what people's class resources are shape who they are and uh, and where they can go and all the opportunities or lack of opportunities they encounter wherever it is they're they're able to to wind up. So. Uh, I came to this question, I'm really interested in home and sort of the subjective experience of what, it, what how people find belonging in the world, largely first rooted in, in spending several years in, in Germany and a, a question that I found very prominent among diasporan Syrians. Um, and last summer I was in, in Berlin doing interviews about, about home and then I actually had a, a couple of weeks in, in Jordan and immediately started asking some you know very, very poor uh, 
families in Jordan, the same questions I was asking people in Germany about home. And I have to say, I got blank stares from these women who could, you know, barely make ends meet, were worried about how to pay rent, um, were dealing with the most dire questions about fam about medical care for ill relatives, about how to, you know, pay for the bus for kids to get to school. And and they also, of course, have questions about, you know, dealing with questions of home. But it, it reminded me of something that is probably quite obvious, but it had to hit me like a brick that certain um, most basic material means have to be met before people can meditate on these uh, more existential questions. I mean, I'm sure people are grappling with them in all sorts of ways, but um, it can be a privilege, perhaps, to, um, mm -hmm. to, to, to think about big questions of belonging when you when you're first worried about how to, how to get food and, and, and water and, and, yeah. and the basics. So, um, so yeah, there are different types of stories and different types of concerns that are absolutely shaped by, by, by material conditions. It's interesting. Um, let's go back to Nora. Um, and, you know, beyond, you know, the, the, the state of the literature and that sort of thing. I mean, you, of course, your own research deals, you know, extensively with questions of mobility and legal regimes and the different classes of migrants. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of how you see those conditions now and what you think the interesting questions are. Yeah, thank you for that. I think part of the reason um, I, I spend less time on sort of attitudes is because of these questions about class and uh, uh, citizenship rights yeah. and how stratified access to citizenship is globally and also what the the global hierarchies and who has what passport, how important that is. And so just to make that a little bit more concrete, one of the things I've been looking at recently has been these citizenship markets um, where what is being sold in these citizenship by investment schemes is precisely unequal access to mobility across the globe. You're and talking so, about like the ability to buy passports. Uh, so the ability, yes, yeah, sorry. So citizenship by investment schemes, it, the first one is in 1984 with St. Kitts and Nevis. And now about a quarter of the globe, um, countries in the globe sell citizenship to high net worth individuals. And so some of the same places, Jordan, mm -hmm. <laughs> Turkey, um, you know, that have, uh, or Bahamas that have stateless populations or are hosting long-term um, uh, uh, populations refugee populations that have temporary protected status that never translates into citizenship rights um, have programs in which you're speeding up uh, residency requirements or removing them entirely when it comes to the high net worth individuals of the world. And um, through investment, you can get access to citizenship. And one of the things we see with the emergence of this market is really clear metrics on how unequal um, access to mobility is across the globe. And so Henley and Partners um, and Art and Capital are two firms that have passport rankings. And just to give you a sense, like, yes, we're talking about elites, but um, for example, in the Art and Capital Index, one of the ways they measure mobility is a mobility score that is one, if your country doesn't need a visa with another country, zero if it does. And so the higher the mobility score, the better. So Ukrainians in 2023 have a, a mobility score of 146. That means there are 146 countries that with a Ukrainian passport, you can legally buy a plane ticket and 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 go. That is not that is pre-authorized for short-term movement, but it has a huge implication for trafficking and who's more likely to be trafficked. By contrast, Afghans have a mobility score of 39. That means that there are only 39 countries in the world that allow Afghans to enter without being individually vetted. 
So in a, and when you look at where those countries are, they're in Oceania or Sub-Saharan Africa. They're not even in the immediate receiving region. And so it means that the likelihood of becoming quote unquote illegal, the likelihood of being trafficked is highly unevenly distributed across the globe. And this has huge implications for forced displacement patterns and who, who can, um, you know, the, 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 the awful images we saw um, in Kabul of people literally climbing on top of a plane because they don't have authorization to take uh, modes of transportation that are safe enough and designed for human beings. And so um, the last thing I'll say is that for people who are interested in things like access to citizenship and denaturalization, um, the Global Citizenship Observatory at the U European University Institute just launched a new database on May 16. Mm -hmm. That's Martin Bank's team. And they've actually now coded the laws for every single country in the world when it comes to uh, conditions for getting citizenship and also denaturalization. So I think that it's harder to get to some of these material questions that are class, that are legal, um, but there are ways of, of getting to them. And there, there's some interesting research that is comparative that gives us kind of a global um, sense of, of um, these differentials. But I think, I think it's something which really drew global attention. I think that, you know, looking at the struggles that Syrians or Sub-Saharan Africans have in trying to get to Europe and look at the, the, the migrant boats being actively sunk in, in the Mediterranean, killing people right, right and left versus Ukrainians simply being able to go wherever they want to go. And, um, and, and I think it's been a very graphic uh, illustration of that dynamic. UAE, I think, is ranked first. In, in the uh, world, in, and in Sudan, I'm guessing, is pretty close to the bottom. To the bottom. UAE was um, number one in the Art Index, not the Henley. Okay. They code them slightly differently, but that was in 2018. And actually, it was right out after they unlocked access to Schengen. And so I have the time series data uh, from Henley and Partners, and it's been really interesting to see how unlocking access to Europe changes other states' perception of how safe your citizens are um, in terms of pre-authorized travel. But those global inequalities are things that I think really, they deserve more attention. And I think in this recent moment, they've gotten it, but I don't know how, how if it'll make any difference. Yeah, yeah, um, Rima, why don't we come back to you then in terms of these the different ways we think about uh, people who are moving, who's a refugee, who's yeah. a migrant, who's a diaspora, who's an exile. That's a that's a very good question, actually, um, because we, I mean, we use the word refugees very loosely. And when we look uh, on the ground, what it means, um, people who are rich are rarely refugees, right? They're investors, they're visitors, they're uh, they can buy their way out of being a refugee. Uh, so we're mainly talking about uh, about those who are less privileged when we when we talk about refugees. And um, and what we tend not to say uh, is that these are also the most exploited workers of the world, right? Uh, I mean, Europe, uh, the few countries in Europe that accepted some refugees. I mean, probably Germany is the one uh, that accepted the most. Um, because because they needed cheap labor, right? Uh, and and uh, same in Lebanon. I mean, the refugees. So Lebanon as a state does not uh, so uh, does not acknowledge them as refugees legally. Uh, they are displaced. Uh, but if if we just do a, a content analysis of uh, every politician's uh, discourse on on uh, the uh, Syrians in Lebanon, 
they all use the word refugees when they want to blame them. <laughs> uh, but when when it's uh, you know when it's more of the the legal context, they are they insist that these are not refugees because because then it has a legal implication, right, in terms of rights. Uh, but we tend to forget that these are actually the cheap workers. Uh, these are uh, the the uh, you know the agricultural sector in Lebanon has historically before the uprising in Syria and before uh, you know the crisis. Um, has historically been Syrian uh, uh, construction workers. So all of these workers have historically been, it's been, uh, you know, uh, uh, migrant uh, uh, workers. I mean, it's seasonal migration, seasonal migration. And some of them, I mean, and after the uh, after the war in Syria, they, they it became more uh, permanent. But uh, and some of the things and why I say it's important to look in depth, because I've I, I want to mention a research that I've done uh, uh, for actually Oxfam uh, and uh, that is very, in the findings were very interesting because this is policy. Uh, so they were looking at the implications of, so uh, with the budget cut uh, 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 for Syrian refugees um, in, in the past years. So there've been a huge budget cut in uh, the aid that uh, was channeled for Syrian refugees in Lebanon. And one of the first things that was done is the baskets that they used to distribute, uh, which includes like basic uh, food and uh, cleaning products and et cetera. One of the first things they removed is um, pads for women, right? Uh, so when we do research and we only think about attitudes at a certain level and we don't think about gender, we don't think about, uh, you know, other things. So they thought it's fine. I mean, these women will find ways to deal with it. And they did find ways to deal with it. But what it meant is that these these in this context, these are women who are the main breadwinners because it's very hard for men, Syrian men to work because of how hostile the environment is. So it's women who work in agricultural uh, in the agricultural sector. They ended up. Uh, you know, every month being unable to go to work for for a week uh, because because they're bleeding, uh, and which means that the whole family and it's five six kids uh, being without food for a week, and then it becomes very difficult because of the social context and like they're ashamed to say why they didn't, so they just disappear. Uh, it becomes very difficult to find another land, and and many of these women were saying we've exhausted all the lands in the region. Like I, I cannot go, I cannot work anywhere anymore and my kids are without. So this is the kind of like politics and policies that are at a level where we don't dig into the implications of this in terms of gender, because we think women will deal with it, but it actually means women and men and kids are sleeping without food. Uh, when we when we think of, uh, you know, what are we doing for the refugees uh, in terms of budgeting? Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there. That's really interesting. Why don't we go back to Wendy for any last thoughts that you might have on these, you know, so many topics here. Yeah, I mean, I will jump from what Rima was discussing in Lebanon to a very different case. I'm writing with with two co-authors, a piece on Syrian refugees in Japan, um, and of which there are about 800 who've come um, as as students in a Japanese government uh, 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 sponsored program to bring um, Syrians who were registered as refugees in Jordan and Lebanon to Japan to get master's degrees. So they are these students in order to qualify are fluent in English, already have a BA and are brought to Japan to get their master's degrees. Um, uh, and the Japanese government is refers to this program, uses the word refugee quite frequently. It's in ways that the government sort of wants to, uh, you know, uh, be on par with, with other developed countries of doing its fair share in the face of a global refugee crisis. But these 
folks do not at all have any kind of legal refugee status. Once they're brought to Japan as essentially foreign students, finish their studies, they are internationals like any international in Japan and need to find essentially a work contract to, to, to be able to stay or get into the sort of a limbo of a designated activity status, which is kind of a catch-all for, for, for other, other people. But similarly, end up um, so very highly skilled folks who have a master's degree um, end up getting sort of channeled into the low wage sector of uh, folding clothes at Uniqlo is what most people wind up uh, but doing. Um, so uh, this, these class dimensions and even um, uh, middle class folks who have, have high aspirations and expectations of, 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 a, of a professional career find themselves um, in, in, a, in a space um, um, uh, structured by their, uh, by their displacement. Um, so for, whether, whether people are in, in Lebanon or, or in Tokyo, the, there's a whole, whole range of, of, of challenges. You know, one of the, one of the cruelest, uh, there's so so many cruel yeah, ones, yeah. but one is that, um, uh, people maybe don't know that, uh, Sudan was actually a major recipient of Syrian refugees. Absolutely. There was a large Syrian community there, and now they're being sec doubly displaced, except yeah. that because of all the restrictions placed on Syrian refugees, they're really like we were talking about the the Syrians who are part of the people fleeing, trying to go to Jeddah, trying to go to Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. and all the complications that raises um, as well. Layers upon layers. Yeah. And in a place that's structured where people's what, what their legal rights allow them mm -hmm. shaping both their material resources and, and legal rights, shaping where people can go, where they get stuck, what their entire life chances are as a result. Well, well, just as a final, I mean, this is only going to get worse with climate change. And our international human rights framework is not prepared, not just because the definition of a refugee means individualized persecution and something like climate change does not individualize, <laughs> um, uh, but because we actually don't have a framework for safe passage under duress. The, the, there is a framework for um, refugee resettlement, asylum, which you know gets into then domestic laws, but there isn't the requisite right of safe passage under duress. The right to cross borders is, it continues to be a citizenship-based right, i.e. that's why passports matter, as opposed to a basic human right. And so some of the work we have to do is kind of reimagining mm -hmm. on a global level what we're going to do about the fact that there's going to be more and more climate-based um, uh, forced displacements and that those are going to be based in the global south, where, which is also where you see some of the weakest passports and lowest passport rankings. And so, yeah, on a, on a, maybe that's a depressing note to end on, but there's well, but, a but major even, reimagination that needs to take but place. But in terms of that reimagination, you know, where, you know, where is there any liberal change going to come from? The United States has essentially eliminated asylum and the European Union outsources um, the protection of its border to Libyan militias and sends out boats to yes. sink boats full of migrants. So the normative superpowers, such as they are, the, the architects of this rule-based order are hardly seem to be interested in developing the kind of mobility regimes that you're that you're talking yeah, about absolutely absolutely i think you're right well that's a that's a depressing note to end on but yeah. i want to thank uh, wendy perlman nora lori and rima majid This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this year's POMAPS annual conference brought together the steering committee and some of the leadership of POMAPS, and we took the opportunity to talk to some of them about regional issues, 
professional issues and a whole range of things that uh, they have some interest in. Um, today, we're going to talk to uh, Kurt Ryan of Appalachian State University and Andre Bank of Giga about the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan and uh, its new positioning within the region and the issues facing it at home. And why don't we start with uh, with Kurt? Uh, uh, Kurt, can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing right now in terms of how Jordan is adapting to this changing international environment and uh, you know what, what's on the mind of Jordan at the moment? Okay. Um, yeah, Andre and I were talking about this quite a bit. That um, uh, Jordan has been, I think, really repositioning itself uh, in the region, trying to recover what it sees as its traditional position. Um, and I, I, in the context of, I think, having felt si at least perceived uh, that it was sidelined in the Trump years um, by the United States. Um, so I do think, with the arrival of uh, a new administration and the ouster of the Trump administration, the, the Jordanians have tried to reposition themselves, get back this sort of special relationship with the U.S. Um, the Kingdom of the United States several times per year it was the first foreign leader to arrive here um, with, the, with the new administration. Um, and I do think it's worth mentioning, though, that part of this is about perception of being sidelined, um, as opposed to, if you look at it empirically, nothing actually changed in terms of U.S. economic aid towards Jordan. It actually went up or uh, extensive military intelligence cooperation. So, you know, a state to state level, there was extensive connections between the two. They've sort of reestablished all that. But from a public perception, I think everywhere from grassroots to the highest levels in Jordanian government, there was a sense of being sidelined for four years. And I would say a, a level of fear that went with that, that they were going to get sidelined by a kind of U.S., Emirati, Saudi uh, trio, uh, or or with also with the state of Israel in terms of what Trump was calling the deal of the century, and which they feared would be at Jordan's expense. Now, they certainly uh, Jordan doesn't lack for issues to challenge it right now between right. normalization with Syria, with uh, what's happening on the Israeli-Palestinian front. Andre, you know, what do you think about all of this? I think that Jordan, uh, in a way in a very typical manner of its foreign policy or regional policy, when the trend was shifting towards this rehabilitation of Assad, they went with it and they even tried in the last couple of weeks prior to the Arab League summit to jump ahead of the of this movement by holding uh, an important meeting in Amman, hosting the Syrian, Egyptian and Iraqi foreign minister, Ayman al-Safadi, the Jordanian foreign minister, was super active, hyperactive if you want, um, in these in these last couple of weeks to show that Jordan is really trying um, to also profit from this from this latest development and that they are on very much good terms again with the Emiratis, with the Saudis, and with uh, some of their other regional partners. Just one short note on on the Jordanian European relationship, perhaps too a bit different from the from the U.S. side. The Jordanians didn't feel so much alienated from the Europeans in those last few years because you didn't have. European Trump, if you want, but um, but I think what 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 really you could see is even if you had that consistency by European, German, French uh, policymakers towards the Middle East, Jordan has always been considered this you know in these tropes of like island of stability and this kind of you know safe space in the middle of a of a tumultuous region and so on, and they've profited from that immensely financially that has continued but i think what's really crucial and what has gained and what has not been seen so much is how much jordan is also a place where european military and especially german military is currently also based and that has been a continuation but i think it's worth mentioning uh, that this is still the case and it's crucial you know as we move forward 
Now, Andre, you've spent a lot of time studying uh, Syrian refugees in Jordan, and the normalization with Assad, to the extent that it happens, is clearly going to have significant effects on the Jordanian economy and Jordanian society. You know, what do you what do you see happening in Jordan now um, if this normalization goes through? I think there are three big issues that the Jordanians consider um, when it comes to bilateral relations with 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 Syria and where they are somehow at least declaring the policymakers where we might see improvement. And the refugee issue that you, you mentioned is certainly one of them. But for me, the practicality really of how big numbers of Syrians who also a lot of them hail from the rebel regions inside Syria, how they should practically go back and what they will expect in Syria is very unclear to me. So I don't think we have the same kind of uh, anti-Syrian discourse that you see in Turkey, currently in the election campaign or in Lebanon, not to the same extent, but I think there, there, there is an expectation that it will improve, but I don't see it really changing. I think the second issue and the one that's been most talked about in recent weeks in terms of the rehabilitation is the drugs issue, the Keptagon uh, issue, mm -hmm. and the idea that with this Jordanian-Syrian, you know, rehab, uh, you know, normalization kind of we will find some kind of solution of this. And one major incident has, of course, been that a Jordanian fighter jet went into Syrian territory and bombarded and killed a drug lord and his family in Suweda uh, in, in, in early May. But this is just singular action. I don't think this issue will really be resolved because on the other side of the border, the Assad regime is primarily profiting from this. That's one of the main sources of income. And even though the Jordanians hope to increase the border security here, again, it's just, it's another issue where I don't see much Jordanian much profiting from this. Um, the third issue is the economic issue. And here um, there are potential midterm prospects that if you have some kind of thaw with Assad, these regional projects of developing a kind of gas pipeline, uh, and an electricity grid connecting Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon towards Turkey. That's a project that they are envisioning, but you don't see the immediate economic benefits of that. This is something more midterm. So long story short, um, I think what really Jordan is gaining in this bilateral uh, rapprochement isn't really much there. I think the bigger thing, again, what Curtis said is the perception that Jordan is kind of in the right spot in the region. I think that's what this is really mostly about. Interesting. Can I add to that, actually, that, that I, I think along those lines, I, I think it's also that without actually saying it out loud, I think the Jordanians have just decided, like a lot of the Gulf states, that, that Assad won um, and they just won it over. And part of what they want is the, the refugee population out. And I think they, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think that's going to change all that much, but I, I think there are definitely parts of the political elite who want to see a major uh, shift of refugees going back home, even though I don't think they're going to be doing that. But the two things I think to play off what you were saying is one, economically, uh, if they, they're also envisioning, therefore, this much more secured border. And the Jordanians definitely see this as a kind of deal in which uh, normalization with Assad would would definitely affect the Captagon trade. And there, I think it's not just the Jordanians, but the Gulf states as well. So I think it's economically, it's important to see um, even though the Jordanian-Syrian trade is not extensive and it won't be in the near future, even though it will increase you know, slightly, it's almost like seeing Jordan as a highway between Turkey and Syria to the north and the Gulf states to the south. And that's for trade on the one hand, but also for 
illegal trade on the other captagon so there are a lot of gulf states pushing jordan in his positions to sort of stand firm open the border and yet close the, the captagon trade at the same time and the other part that i think goes with that and you mentioned it in terms of the energy cooperation is so jordanians definitely feel i mean they've had they had this much heralded uh shama jadid you know this new levant um uh triumvirate of jordan and egypt and iraq so i don't think it's accidental that that trio are the ones that hosted the new yeah. meeting to sort of bring Assad into the fold um and most of their cooperation it's not some kind of military alliance it's very pragmatic it's all energy oriented it's about water it's about oil it's about gas it's about electricity and they have very elaborate projects in mind including the pipeline from Basra to Aqaba at some point but they also have I'm mean, just the idea the name Shamashadid you know they're, they're, it implies I think that at some point they're envisioning a peacetime Syria adding itself to that probably Lebanon as well now, if, if you if you look to the West, then uh, Jordanians are extremely worried about what's happening in Israel between Israel and the Palestinians for uh, the changes in the in the status quo in Jerusalem, the uh, the possible collapse of the Palestinian Authority, uh, this recurrent or resurgent talk about confederal solutions or Jordan option, that sort of thing. What do you think Jordan is really thinking about in terms of uh, you know looking over at what's happening between Israel and the Palestinians? Um, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, I, yeah, I do think that that um, they're very worried and, and that they to me is is, you know, top to bottom that the state and, you know, average Jordanian citizens might not be on the exact same page on this, but the level of concern is right and 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 caring about the issue. Um, and I would say also fundamental depression that anything good is going to come out of this. Um, but I do think, yeah, the single most explosive thing you can toss into Jordanian politics half the time is that the the Jordan option, right? That Jordan would be the, the alternative um, state and which is, you know, not going to happen. But, you know, that used to be the kind of thing that on the far right ultranationalist periphery of Jordanian politics was a kind of standing conspiracy theory. But now if members of the Knesset are openly talking about population transfer and so on, it's it's not marginal anymore. It's not peripheral. It's been very much mainstreamed as a fear. So people at the sort of center of political life are, are talking about it. And I think that's why there was so much fear during the Trump years of deal of the century, meaning exactly what would that <laughs> involve? So the Abraham Accords, you know, normalization was, was one thing, but that deal that never came about was something they absolutely legit feared. And I think still do. I mean, this is even more far right government. We've gone from, you know, what far right to far, far right. I'm not I'm running out of terms uh, for this coalition uh, to the West. So I think they're very, very serious. And as you know, they also the Hashemites make make a, um, always make a strong argument uh, about uh, it always put out there that they also see themselves the protectors of the Christian holy places in the old city of Jerusalem. Um, and they worry about that, too, being transferred to some other potential um patron mm -hmm. and they want to hoard on to that but i think there's legit extensive worry about what will happen for the palestinian people andre any other thoughts about that um yeah i mean i i 99 agree with what <laughs> with what curtis said on the on the general evaluation i think i think for jordan um the the issue is also while there is this major concern and that is shared you know both amongst elites and the wider public and there is not an open debate or not even really a closed internal elite debate about ending the, the bilateral peace treaty with Israel. You had some other phases where this was a little bit more 
the case. And even with this government, you don't you don't see that. But that shows just in the bigger picture how Jordan is positioned in the region towards the Gulf states, towards um, the, in the US, towards Europe. So I think that's still an, a kind of an, an, a no-go. But I'm wondering really what would happen if there were some, you know, renewed further escalations, either in Jerusalem or elsewhere in the West Bank, on what the Jordanian street would do. Surprisingly, I would say, when you look at, at the developments over the last few years, in May 21, when there was escalation, there was some protests in Jordan, but it was not as extensive as it used to be in the 1990s and in the 2000s. Mm. So there is still some strong solidarity with Palestine and with the questions and Palestinians, but it doesn't really show to that much level of street politics in Jordan. That's at least my, my sense mm. currently. And I think a second point um, that we could add another worrying uh, question for the Jordanian decision makers is the question of what happens when Mahmoud Abbas dies. The Jordanians have been really close uh, with him. They've been kind of the main protectors of, of, of him, if you want, and the main interlocutor. And it's not really clear what will happen uh, if he passes away and whether we will have kind of a split up of his position, you know, as the president, the PA, and so on. And, and who will be those actors? So I think that's a worrying uh, issue and an issue to look for when 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 you want to evaluate Jordanian Palestine policy. That is a bold prediction that Abu Mazen will someday die. Um, <laughs> it's uh, bold. Um, let's talk uh, finally about the domestic realm. And uh, you know, there's been uh, this this new reform initiative that the uh, that the palace has put together. Um, you know, the new party system and the like. There's questions about the succession and uh, and, and uh, the king and this turmoil within the royal family. Um, what do you see in terms of like the stability of Jordan and thinking about this possible transition? What do you and the possibilities of reform? You know, what, what do you see? In, is it just the same old, or is there something genuinely new happening here? I don't see that there's something genuinely new happening here. What we have certainly seen over the last few years and especially last month is the much more open open grooming mm -hmm. of the crown prince Hussein, who will then future be the king. Hussein the second, I guess, um, as the as the future leader uh, of Jordan, he will marry um, on the first of June. He will marry uh, um, Rashwa Asaif, um, a Saudi daughter of a very famous uh, businessman from Riyadh, and um, together perhaps with another wedding that happened of his younger sister Iman in in March, and perhaps also with the 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 coronation of King Charles of the UK. The last few weeks have been quite interesting in terms of, you know, wedding, a monarchical wedding and coronation policies. And what you could certainly see is how Jordan is positioned in these kind of international networks of monarchs visiting and coming back world. and forth. What a world. So that's so that's definitely not that's something, you know, that's just happening now, but it's not really something new in terms of right. structure. Or so in Jordan. I think. Also, what is not completely new is the kind of protest dynamics that you've seen in the country. You've had major riots uh, in, in the south of Jordan, in Ma'an, uh, in December of, of, of 2022, and you have ongoing protests here and there across the country. And that's very much kind of a sense that a number of Transjordanian youth who, you know, the Transjordanians who used to be the backbone of the regime, 
really feel kind of discriminated against it. They are not integrated economically. You have a youth unemployment that's, you know, in for inofficially over 50%. Um, and you don't have really perspectives for these, uh, either to incorporate them politically or economically or socially. So I think that's, but that's all again, nothing really new. And I think the monarchy with its, with its very efficient security uh, agencies can 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 manage these kind of threats. Uh, Kurt, probably you want to come in. Final word to you, Professor Ryan. Well, I mean, I, I agree that the, the new is not all that new, right? Uh, even the even the reform initiative, because the, the we have what a twenty twenty one modernization committee, which was a, you know another blue ribbon commission. This one was actually more eclectic than most of the ones have been in the past in terms of bringing in people from actually very different parts of the Jordanian society and having them specialized in subcommittees and whatnot. Um, um, but it, it, the, the part that's not new is it sounds like an echo, right, from the, the liberalization programs of the, the late 80s and early 90s, the National Charter of 91, um, 2005, we had the National Agenda. Um, in 2011, we had uh, the National Dialogue for Reform, uh, the King's Own Discussion Papers, actually about reform, um, and now the 2021 Modernization Committee. And I the part that's, you know, this one is is especially ambitious in terms of um, changing the party structure, changing the electoral structure um, and having party lists and uh, trying to increase uh, youth participation has been a huge angle here. Um, changing the the age of um, being able to be an MP down to, uh, to 25. Uh, the party lists actually have to be um, uh, at least 20 percent um, youth. Um, and uh, have to and and women and it includes you know people with physical challenges and also have to be included on the list. So there's a lot on the list, but the the part that um, I think is um, has to be added to that is, but the parliament is really really weak and doesn't have uh, all that much influence. And so you can change the party structure and the electoral structure and, and maybe even be successful with that. But it's not that influential or and important, and which is I think one point um, uh, that is not changing. Uh, but the other point is, I think for most people, and I think those riots and protests prove it again, um, is that for most people, this whole neoliberal model that the kingdom has been on really for decades now, there are large numbers of Jordanians who are feeling sidelined and left out. And this is why people take to the streets. And that too is not new. You know, the work of Julian Schwedler shows in great detail. I mean, how Jordan's long history of protest uh, over the years. Um, but I do think that that's a disconnect between you know, reformers who are talking parties, elections, and at the street level, at the base level, most people aren't talking about parties and elections. It's not necessarily they agree or disagree with it. They're talking about the cost of living and the cost of housing and the cost of food uh, in Jordan. The, the costs in Jordan are just astronomical of the just day-to-day -day cost of living and difficulties of, of getting through with with, with food and and, and uh, shelter alone. And not surprisingly, um, that's what I think a lot of people would really like to see a focus on is getting you know improvement in day-to-day -day lives, uh, which is why I think they're not necessarily um, focusing on you know other issues that international media sometimes do that sounds kind of interesting and flashy. But I think most people are focused on a much more day-to-day -day mundane, but they're ultimately much more important set of issues of just getting by. Well, great. Thanks. We've been speaking to Curtis Ryan and Andre Bonk. So now 
let's go to the other side of the political spectrum and talk about uh, Islamist political parties and more broadly kind of Islamic trends within society uh, across the region. We have a Nathan Brown of George Washington University and Stephen Brook at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll start with you, Nathan. And, you know, we know that we're living in a period right now where uh, Islamists face very, very different circumstances than they have in a long time and the hardships in so many different ways, both with society and with the, the with the with states. So what do you see when you think when you look at the landscape of Islam and politics in the region today? Well, yes, Mark, you're right. I don't see what I what I would have seen like 10 or 20 years ago. Um, at that time, I say, let's go back 20 years, there was an identifiable political Islamist project. And it wasn't about, not all Muslims were part of it, not as all Islamists were part of it, but it was basically saying we can, we can if we go into the political process, there are things we can get from politics um, um, that are going to be part of a broader agenda. Um, and that still exists in a few places in a in 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 a probably in a less ambitious way in the past you know there's still islamists involved in electoral politics in morocco and jordan kuwait um and and so on but essentially in most countries that has dried up or been very very harshly repressed so there's still plenty of role for religion in social and political life but the idea that the electoral process is a place to look for this really doesn't apply anywhere anymore Stephen, I guess same question to you. Yeah, I I think that's that's really right. I mean, it's funny when you think back about Islamists or scholarship on political Islam over you know the last decade, uh, as politics in the region opened up, we had kind of a, a consequential study of how Islamists win elections, political behavior, and these types of questions. And I think now there's just kind of a a, a big question mark about what the current research on political Islam is really going to kind of focus on, right? It's there's there's kind of a, a feeling of stasis. And I think as as Nathan suggested, you know, one of the one of the ways that this happened is there was an idea about what Islamists could achieve through the electoral process. And I think that in some ways they were kind of unprepared for the depth of opposition they faced from other actors in society. But then I also think that Islamists themselves tended to kind of overreach in a lot of things that they wanted to do. And since those kind of lessons were learned and then learned so painfully with some of these very prominent reversals, the, the movement has kind of not really been in a space of kind of critique and reflection and development. And so it just seems to be stuck in this position of what is the Islamist project and how do we get it? And th those questions are, are not really being resolved. So let's kind of be concrete about that then. So what, how can they adapt in terms of facing these hostile states, hostile societies, you say they're not in a moment of reflection, what are they doing? Well, I mean, I think one of the, the issues for them is that the environment right now is, and this is not just a story about Islamism, but it's just tough for any form of opposition, right? I mean, there's a, a tremendous pressure on just maintaining the status quo. I think an interesting thing that is occurring is a lot of the regimes are actually starting to co-opt religion in such a way as to make the Islamist make Islamist activism even more kind of toxic and difficult, right? We get these old critiques about 
oh, we're fighting extremism. We're a regime that's in favor of kind of interfaith dialogue. We're pushing forward women's rights. And so Islamists are these retrograde actors that, you know, are, are, are standing in the, in the face of progress. And I think that that's in addition to the, the, the tangible and kind of vicious physical repression that are, that's occurring in some places, just kind of the overall discursive environment, the international environment, it, it's just hard for Islamists to really kind of do anything other than basically kind of accommodate the status quo in the way that they've done in a place like Morocco and Jordan, even amidst these developments in the region that you might think that they would have once been at the forefront of critiquing. That's an interesting uh, direction. You know, we can go back to Nathan. Uh, you know, you've written in the past, uh, you know, kind of book about this in a way um, about kind of Islam as more of like a language of politics rather than a politics itself. And do you think that's still the language of politics? It is a language of politics. A language it's of not, politics. Necessarily, yeah, not necessarily the language, but what I would say is let's take the Islam or ism mm -hmm. off and just talk not about, about Islamism, this kind of conscious <laughs> political project. Uh, but if you take a look simply at the the realm of public policy and 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 what the state does, um, Middle East is not unique this way. But the state is just very very active in the religious realm, right? Who owns mosques? Well, in an Islamic legal sense, God owns them. But the fact is, the Ministry of Al Qaq is 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 the active manager of of, of them. Um, Religion is a mandatory subject in, in 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 state schools. That means you've got to be producing universities have got to be producing people uh, equipped to to to, to teach um, religion and and sometimes Christianity in in some countries too, um, as as an option. And so what that means is that there's just an awful lot that's going on in politics and policy that is related to religion. It is, it is this, this, the state is not a neutral presence anywhere in the religious realm, but certainly it's got a very, very large presence there. And that generates, as I say, parts of the parts of the state, even kind of, you could say, religious publics, you know, people who tradition, you know, traditionally go into fields of religious education or, 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 or that sort of thing. So, so I would say religion is still very much part of the political and social landscape of the region. And, and, the political Islamist project is no longer the leading edge of that. But, but it's interesting, you know, you think about uh, the, the long-term Islamization of society, the project of the 1970s and 1980s, and, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that just vanished overnight. I don't think it did vanish overnight, um, but I don't. I, I, I don't think religion has vanished from from, from most societies. Again, I, I I think as academics, one of the things we probably want to start doing is you know, stop trying to explain Islamists, political Islam, and start trying to understand a little bit more about, about religion in comparative perspective. Um, religion is an important part of the social fabric because it's a political fabric, not just in the Middle East. It's not actually not all that different. Um, it may be different in degree and in form, but I think we can do an awful lot more comparative work rather than focusing on just one aspect of the phenomenon. I always like the way Julian Schwedler framed this. Instead of studying Islamist politics, to study politics in which Islamists are one of the actors engaged on that. I always thought that was a nice way of framing it. But Stephen, what do you think about this? Yeah, I think it's it's a great point. I mean, it's it's kind of a convenient shorthand to think of kind of Islamists and of, as as people have put it, you know, Melanie Kamet and others as kind of the Islamist advantage. But when you really kind of decompose it and start asking these questions, you know, you you, you understand 
one of the things that is going on there is Islam has access to a series of institutions that under certain conditions can be useful for political mobilization, right? But of course, that's true of the left as well. You would say, you know, maybe Islamists have access to certain forms of identity or symbols that are useful in political mobilization. Again, you could apply these to the left, a repertoire, right? Same, same type of argument. So when you speak about kind of political Islam, it is important, I think, to kind of disaggregate down and, and really identify, like, what is the source of that advantage? But then that brings us to that kind of necessary question. Well, how is that different from the other forms of political mobilization that are potentially possible? Right. Well, it's like we were discussing with uh, with Francesco Andina in the first uh, in, in the first part of this segment, where you know you have all these forms of political action and mobilization that might not manifest in electoral politics. Um, how do you how do you assess the significance of those kinds of political actions? I mean, I think this is where questions of research design come into play. I mean, we have kind of made a lot of progress in trying to think about, you know, these particular questions about political behavior in terms of looking at individuals, looking at the way that they interact with parties and institutions, looking at the conditions under which certain symbols or identities become uh, become useful and, and why that might occur more often in certain settings than in others. Um, I think you know, the if if I were kind of advising kind of graduate students maybe about places where they might look to continue to develop this research a little bit further, I think that one thing that would be really useful is to try and look at Islam and politics in contexts kind of across multiple different countries and even outside of the region. I think there's a lot of work there uh, that 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 could be quite revealing for these questions that that we're wrestling with. Nathan, I want to come back uh, to something you said a few minutes ago. This, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, kind of religious statecraft and the way in which uh, the, the regimes and the states across the region are kind of instrumentalizing a different type of politics of religion. And I'm curious to your thoughts on that and what that does in terms of this broader language of politics. Um, let me make an observation here. I think as political scientists, we often go to the instrumentalization a little too quickly. Mm -hmm. It certainly happens, right? So regimes certainly um, uh, find ways or the search to find ways they can mold religious discourse, that they can use religion as, as a tool for mobilization, counter-mobilization, um, and legitimation, and, and that sort of thing. But again, religion is just so much a part of a life. It's a, it's a pretty, uh, pretty difficult tool to wield on some occasion. And there's an awful lot that's going on, even within the state apparatus, that's not necessarily under direct direct regime control. I'm involved right now, actually, in co-editing a special issue. I'm not contributing to it. So this is not <laughs> uh, this is this is not flagging my own work, but 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 work that I'm uh, uh, trying to uh, 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 encourage among others that looks at the politics of family law reform in, in the uh, Arab world. Because the interesting thing is that even in sharply authoritarian regimes, this is one area where there's broad public debate. I look at Egypt, almost all issues are off the table for public debate, except for family law. People argue about it in public, in the newspapers. Um, and so there's some way in which the, the, this is the, uh, the, the fields of things that we associate with religion and in the Arab world, the family law is one of them, um, are, are, I think, just so much a part of daily life and so sensitive that it's, it's uh, politics is often more than simply 
you know, the Sisi doing this or or uh, Mohammed bin Salman doing that. They certainly do try to use religion. They certainly do try to manipulate religion. But as as I say, it's a pretty it's 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 a pretty tough tool to wield. Let me, you know, maybe look at this from a different direction. Uh, Stephen, you know, we we just saw uh, a little while ago, Air Barometer came out with this survey showing for the first time, like a rebound of religiosity in the region. And of course, everyone's first response to that is, oh, political Islam is back. And I didn't see it that way at all. But I'm curious, you know, your thoughts about those connections. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think from from my recollection, the way that the question was worded was, you know, this, do you support giving religious figures mm -hmm. kind of uh, political power or authority over government decisions or something like that? And I think in one reading, that could be support for political Islam kind of generally. I, I think we just want to be careful of not making that jump to, you know, this is support for Islamist parties or, right. or something like that. I mean, it, it in one sense, it could very well be taken as support for giving the state power to regulate religion in, in some ways. Um, but I also think, you know, it it may well be that political Islam, like pretty much any political ideology, always looks better in the opposition than in charge, right? And so everybody loves a backup quarterback. Um, and maybe we might be getting a little bit of that effect picked up here. Or it could be that the that it's support for the kind of uh, religious statecraft that you're describing, Nathan. Yeah, um, it, it it absolutely could be. I mean, I think one of the lessons that I draw is we're, we should be looking a little bit more at long-term and almost generational changes. We're not necessarily, who are you going to vote to for in the next election? Um, I've seen contrary data on religious observance. It seems to be going in the other direction. Um, I'm not completely up to date, so maybe that's that's reversed. Uh, but I think what we should be paying attention to here are much more sort of sociological and demographic trends than immediate public opinion polls about the next election. Well, great, thanks, Nathan. And thank you, Stephen. Mm -hmm.